0: Hi, and welcome to the Maffeo Drinks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Maffeo. In episode 46, I had the pleasure of chatting to Jack Or Ewing. He is the CEO of the Westbourne drinks company, the Dapi Share. He brings an incredible experience of the various stages of brand development from the start to reaching scale in a market. We dived into efficient and effective marketing spend and how to align the route to market to each brand stage. I hope you will enjoy our chat.
1: Hi, Jack. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thanks, Chris. Thank you very much for
0: having me on. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Absolutely. Welcome to the Mafia Drinks podcast. It's an honor to have you here. I think we bumped into each other on LinkedIn for a, for a while, but never got the opportunity to speak. And now, you know, finally we managed. So I'm really, I'm really happy.
1: I'm excited and I'm an, I'm an advocate and a follower of you on that LinkedIn and look forward to your, your updates. So I've always got interesting things to say. Thanks,
0: Jack. So let's start with you are the CEO of Share. Let, let's dive in on, you know, one of my dear topics, which is creating demand versus creating brand awareness. I've been in endless conversation in corporates where, you know, all, all the brand managers, marketing managers are talking about, we need to grow brand awareness. We need to grow brand awareness. And I get goosebumps when I when I hear that because, you know, for me, brand awareness as such is a very fluffy term that can lead to a lot of like money spent but not in an effective way so what what is your take on how do you build demand for a brand in your
1: experience well i mean number one is find yourself a slot on the hottest podcast in the country and that is absolutely the way to go but i completely agree with you we've been talking a lot in the office you know we are the uk's number one uh, premium rum brands. We do about thirty thousand nine liters. We've been marketing ourselves at times, at, you know, with, with big budgets, at times with more trimmed budget for nearly ten years in the country. You know, we are still not a well-known brand, and you know, brand awareness is something that is incredibly expensive and hard won. And that's just in the UK, where we are quite a significant you know, player within the independent spirits kind of category. The big mistake that you you often make as a independent spirit is to overly focus on consumer awareness trying to drive your pull through from the consumers by doing expensive events or investing in influencers or putting lots of money into social media when you know as you say the the real game is to build your distribution footprint and to work with your trade partners to actually get your product selling and you know it's an incredible leap of faith when you really think about it that you're giving away bottles or spending a lot of money in a festival or a or giving, giving away drinks or spending money on an influencer for those people to go and buy what is an awful lot of drinks from the very few pubs or bars that you might have managed to get listed in at the early stage of your brand. You've got to sell an awful lot of cocktails to cover a £500 pound influencer fee, which is a tiny amount of money to spend on an influencer. So you know, I think the big learning for me over the last five, six years of running this brand has been to really delay your consumer marketing until you've got the distribution footprint to back it up. Um, and I think that is later than a lot of uh, spirits founders might hope for in their journey. Wow. That's, uh, you, you don't know how
0: happy you make me to, <laughs> to say what you said, because it's exactly my, my philosophy, because especially in my experience is that even if you approach a thousand consumers, potential consumers that, by the way, drank your brand for free in that <laughs> festival, most probably, or or they, they, bought, they bought it at a fair price or whatever that would be, you know, then even if they love it, they took a picture of it and then they have no idea where to go and find it. That, that is the biggest issue. What I always recommend is that, okay, I'm not against doing events as long as they are small, let's say, sustainable events. But they should be in the trade where your product is distributed. So if I want to go back to it next Saturday, I know that I can find that product in it. There's a lot of people that do that, that they take, for example, like a fancy hotel rooftop bar or whatever, where they're not distributed. And then they throw a cool party with super cool people. And then these people go back to their rooftop and then it's like, no, never heard this brand. Yeah, there was a party. There was a private party two weeks ago. Sorry, like we've never, we've never heard that
1: brand since. Exactly. And the one thing you quickly learn about super cool people is that they very rarely buy their own alcohol, right? <laughs> you know, they all go to the same parties and uh, drink for free the whole time. And none of them have ever bought a bottle of spirits in their whole life. So uh, the worst market the target uh, with your sampling anyway. We
0: spoke about distribution. So how, how do you move the first steps? in a country, what was your experience or at least what, what would you recommend to do? Because does it start with the neighborhood? Does it start with the city? Does it start with the country itself? How do you pick the city? How do you pick
1: the place to start? So, so I think we were very lucky in our timing. So DAPI founded in 2015, right in the middle of the gin boom, there was, there was kind of new gin brands and distilleries popping up all over the country, you know, let alone in London. And you know, we were going into a bar and saying, can I talk to you about my rum brand? And they would say, don't you mean gin? And so the refreshingness of of being a rum brand was a, was a little bit of an an in, and there was less of a, you know, we were one of the first big independent, I think we were first independent rum brand founded in the UK for over a hundred years when we started in 2015. Now, you know, that is not the story that is today. And it's incredibly easy to found a spirit brand today on Master of Malt. When I started, there were 250 rum products. You know, there are over a thousand now. You know, there's that to sort of show the kind of innovation and the growth in the category. All great things for a leading independent spirits brand. But it does, you know, makes you a lot less unique and a lot, so you know, your sales pitch much harder to land. From so from Duffy's perspective, we don't own our own distillery. We don't have a visitor centre. We were happy, We were founded in Notting Hill, and Notting Hill Carnival is the Europe's largest street party and a huge celebration of Cal- Caribbean culture in the sort of center of London, that for us feels like a bit of a marketing and a kind of, that's where our tribe kind of go to. And it's a wonderful melting pot of English, Caribbean and Caribbean diaspora of people that all come to one place. And that's a one moment in the year where we kind of own it. But broadly, you know, rum in the UK is a, is a broadly drunk, spirit but you need to be listed in an awful lot of places so while our heartland has always been london our desire as a brand is to get international listings as early as possible and we've always managed to find ourselves that spot as the one independent brand that sits in the rum category alongside the kind of mainstay competitors and you know i love walking into a pub and seeing your appletons your mount gays and your krakens bacardi captain morgan and duffy and i love being that one quirky independent brand within that category. And there's probably always a nice space for an independent brand within those kind of more mainstream brands. And you know, you might be seeing a fraction of the volume that they would be getting because you can't afford to buy your space on that list, but you can definitely justify your place on that shelf. And that's kind of how Duffy's been successful in the UK. It's a slightly different story when you talk in the international markets that are in the Czech Republic, where you are as a good example of that you know, we don't have that biggest independent, you know, kind of category card that we can play. So it is much more of a traditional bartender by bartender, start in Prague, spend a few days in try and get ourselves into the top 20, top 30 bars and play more of a kind of premium traditional route into the market. But I do think, yeah, UK and, and the kind of route to our biggest success has been Get into the nationals as quickly as possible and try to expand your distribution footprint from as early as you can in your journey. It,
0: it's very interesting because what I what I what I usually talk about here is 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 also like the fact that there is always for any spirits category there is always a traditional consumption occasion and a more more modern one, mm. you know, a wider one. So of course, like when you think of a ram occasion from a restaurant perspective or from a bar perspective, we were discussing this that. You don't actually have a clear ethnic provenance to, to look for, like in terms of like what agave would have or Italian spirits or beer would have. You don't have like a, a Chinese, Japanese, you know, you don't have the the very widely available kind
1: of like cuisines of the world. Carbon cuisine is not even in the top 20 most searched for UK cuisines, you know, in the UK. And I was listening to your your podcast by Paul Donner's, Oh, this is him talk about it. If you are a tequila brand, you can legitimately go to Mexican restaurants in every city and to build your tequila brand through that. The same for Malfi Gin or Peroni. You could just do that through Italian restaurants. But you know, the, the number of searches for Caribbean food in the UK is less than 5,000 a month, you know, versus in the UK, um, you know, on Google search. The, the equivalent in the top 10, they're, most of them are half a million plus. There just really isn't a sort of massive interest in Caribbean food that is changing. And Turtle Bay Restaurants is the kind of absolute lighthouse, most amazing partner that we've got. And their founder, Ajith Joe Akramo, is one of our investors, has given us amazing access to the Turtle Bay menu. And they're one of our biggest customers. They sell more through 50 Turtle Bay restaurants than we do through 400 Asda's or 400 Morrisons. So they're a fantastic partner. But there just aren't many of those in the UK. You know the second biggest Caribbean restaurant chain, I think, is Cottons, who have six or seven sites, and the third biggest is Rum Kitchen with two. So, how did you, how do you select the,
0: the the bars that are right for you? So, when when it comes to what could be a target occasion or what could be a focus that you have, like, do you have a, a typology of outlet that
1: for you? make sense to start from so our sort of perfect example is between five and 12 sites informal premium is our kind of what we call uh, an informal premium it's quite an urban trend that we've definitely seen in london you'll see it in new york i probably don't know enough about the B scene and in europe to make comment on it but places where you've got some sort of reason you know high quality high quality food that's served in an informal way so places like school-made burger kitchen, Honest Burgers, Patient Bun, Pizza Pilgrims, Meat Liquor. They're high-energy, food-led. They've got a small menu of maybe 10 drinks, and you can take one or two of those. They're the sort of places that might do three or 4,000 bottles a year, and they're, and you and you can get your arms around them. You can train their staff. You can give them incentives. You can get them all wearing T-shirts, and they're selling enough per site to make it all worth a while. And that's our absolutely perfect count. You know, they're not particularly geographically set. You know, even Pizza Pilgrim's doesn't necessarily call itself an Italian restaurant. Um, and it's really about, you know, right target audience. They like to have a pre or during dinner drink. They're the really, really nice sites. We love to target those. To go back to your question about rum's occasion, I would say rum's greatest strength is it also its greatest sweetness at the same time. And it's, it's kind of versatility. You can have a rum punch. You can have a rum old fashioned, mojitos, daiquiris, pina coladas. There's this kind of enormous range of drinks that you can serve. And, you know, you you're talking everywhere from your sundowner on a beach with your family, where you might have a pina colada all the way through to drinking rum and cokes at three o'clock in the morning in a nightclub. It's a huge stretch of occasions to, to go after. And unfortunately, none of them are really big enough for you as a independent brand to own. You know, there is no Aferol Spritz moment where enough people yeah. are drinking p- pina coladas for you to become a pina colada brand. I, I was you know, listening to you and Paul talking about some incredible brands, you know, your, your Guinness moments, your Peroni moment, your Aperol moment, your Magnus moment, moment, you know, Hendrix. You absolutely know as someone even not inside the industry, what those moments, those occasions are, how that drink is served, uh, they are big international brands with great distribution power, as well as marketing money to, to create that moment and to deliver that moment in that occasion, and to have a little bit of power over your distribution, to be able to kind of make sure that that moment's delivered. Yeah. I think the kind of difference of experience that, between the independent and the startup versus the, the global it's just absolutely no control of your distribution until quite late on in your journey. And even with a great distributor, you yeah. don't really have that portfolio power. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, as much as I would love to say, share is in our name. Rum is a collective collegiate experience. It brings people together. There's no better example of that serve than the rum punch. It's got, it's steeped in history. It's a delicious drink. It's very popular. We would like the Duppy Moment to be a sharing serve. You know, so we want, you know, punch bowls. We spent a lot, a lot of money and time and thought building out beautiful punch bowls, ordering, you know, extra large cocktail shakers. It's really tricky for a brand our size to go into the trade and say, we want to be a rum punch group serve. And I want I you imagine. to list my punch bowl. Here's a punch serve. I want you to put that on the menu at £25 and serve it in these gold cups. They're like, who the hell are you? You know, you can't be. <laughs> you know, no one drinks this. <laughs> no one. No one's walking into into pubs asking for golden punch bowls at, at twenty five pounds each. So there isn't a an occasion for that. And we're not big enough to to drive it. The role of that independent is to be nimble and to be flexible and to work with your sales opportunities and to kind of fit your brand into what they need. Mm-hmm. If they're looking for a late night daiquiri serve, You you. you yeah, I'm sure you can make a damn good daiquiri. I
0: think, like what you were mentioning before, like you know the Abbot's Priest, the Hendrix Gin, and so on, like kind of moments. They they are also you know coming through many many years of trial and error. I don't I don't have evidence of this, but you know I'm sh- I'm pretty sure that in the beginning, like even those big brands, they were not sure about what to go for. I'm, i always bring up the example of Campari because you know I'm an, I'm a big Negroni and American yeah. drinker, but. I'm pretty sure that I mean when you go to Italy, there's a lot of Campari spritz going on. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm pretty sure that there is still imperfection into their execution on okay, like well, do, do we go for Campari spritz, but then we cannibalizing aperos spritz, and then or oh, are we going yeah. single-mindedly for an Americano or an or a Negroni? So I hear what you say about the agility. The blessing and the curse of rum, on yeah. you know, from old fashion all the way down to piña colada. But when you can get into that and put that foot in the door, then you know, trying to to make the most out of it. Because I, I w- what I was thinking was, when you were mentioning all those brands that you know Dapicher is sitting next to, is how to differentiate yourself. And in a way, you answer with uh, the fact that you're independent. But then, in the moment in which there's more independence fighting for that shelf or next to that share, then how can you differentiate yourself into the mind of that bartender or that bar owner?
1: Yeah, well, it's a really good question. USPs are easily easily explained, but poorly understood, I think. (laughs) From our perspective, we've over the course of time, as we've scaled, what we've managed to do is use design and the blends to create something that tastes really premium and looks really premium, but can, can operate on a commercial basis that is competitive with our biggest competitors. And that's been a real success story for us in that we can go up against Havana and with our white rum, compete with like-for-like like on price with Havana 3, but offer a much superior liquid with a design that is, you know, looks a lot more premium and can command a higher price point. So a lot of our pitch into the trade is to say, you can get the kind of big global house product commercials, but you can charge your consumers a independent premium you know, positioning. So we're better commercials than our independent competitors and a better kind of look and feel design and command a higher price point than our house kind of global competitors so we're kind of offering them an an improvement against both of our competitor sets and i think that is you know we're able to do that by leveraging our position as the largest independent you know because we've managed to achieve that kind of scale of production that means that our kind of cost of goods is pretty competitive with our with our major global competitor set that said i think where duppy is always going to be good is going to be in those kind of medium scale UK brands where we can put a brand ambassador in there. They're going to meet me or meet George. They're going to get kind of bespoke menus. We'll come up with some names for the cocktails. We'll give them sort of signed bottles from our, our you know, brand partner, Kano. Yeah. You know, we can do some things as an independent brand that are pretty kind of big and interesting, adding value on a more emotional level than, than either our small independent friends or our kind of global competitors. So you know, I think a lot of those intangibles do end up playing quite a big part in kind of winning those listings Um, because, you know, we can get our arms around and make a difference in there. Well, that's, that's very interesting what you're saying, because that's the, the, the best thing
0: when you deliver to your customers and to your consumers, a very good, you know, quality price ratio and, and you basically, basically it's not worth for them anymore to go with a more mainstream brand, because all of a sudden it's like, I'm going to mean like, you know, I can premiumize effortlessly and convince and command higher margins for me. I was having this discussion with one of the guys at Bar Convent in Berlin last October, and we were talking about this with, with some of these brands that are very premium, but then they are very unaffordable. No? And then all of a sudden, it's like, yeah,, yeah. I, would, I would love to, to support you, and I would love to support your independent journey. but mm-hmm. it just doesn't make sense for me. You know, I can do it because I love you, Jack, and you're a nice guy and you're always here having old fashioned at my bar. <laughs> so as yeah. long as possible, I can try to squeeze you in with margins and so on. And we were discussing this with Maurice Doyle, you know, the the love and money in in one of the one of the episodes. Now, like you need to balance out the the love and money. But at some yeah. point, you know, the love ends if you don't deliver money. Either either with higher margins or with you know, lower cogs versus another independent brand. And then all of a sudden you gained your spot and you're going to be there for a long time because it makes sense all of a
1: sudden. You don't want your bartender kind of wincing when they have to uh, buy another one of your bottles. If it's too expensive, I think you're going to create a huge barrier. I, I think within rum, rum probably has a little bit of a category issue that there's not a huge amount of appetite and interest and understanding of realms above 30 pounds or 30 euros. You know, I think there's a very few brands that hit any kind of scale above that price point, uh, Don Paffer and Diplomatico are the kind of standout success stories. And uh, Stephen Carroll did an incredible job with Don Paffer, get getting it to that kind of a scale, sort of 250,000 lines in a similar kind of timeline to us did an amazing job at that but it's really really challenging to do it you know and, and yeah he, he focused on markets where there is quite a good culture for drinking you know neat spirits and created an occasion but couldn't really make it work in the uk beyond beyond kind of eight or nine thousand nine liters because there really isn't like this this big big kind of a premium rum interest you know people aren't aren't willing to spend that much money so you've got to kind of compete in the cocktails in the name cocktails and rum doesn't have its named even category call-out like the gin tonic that is getting people even aware that they're drinking rum yeah and as a as a rum brand operator the number of times you talk to someone either at a trade show or a friends at dinner party and they're sort of gumption and they'll say to you i don't really like rum you like, oh well great that's basically my entire life selling it so thanks very much but you sort of then say, well, do you like, do you like daiquiris? And they're like, yes. Do you like pina coladas? Yes. You know, they're, well, they're all rums. And they, people don't necessarily know that rum is the kind of primary ingredient in these yeah. super famous, really successful cocktails that they drink all the time. You know, rum is always three or four out of the top 10 uh, cocktails in the world.
0: I, I, can, I can imagine like, you know, the average person like doesn't really know. Because there's there's no rum in the name. It's not like a whiskey sour that you automatically yeah. It, so it's it's made with whiskey, you know. And and even no rum example, in the name. And yeah, old fashioned is another example. It's like you can be done with rum with whiskey, but some people don't. Yeah. You know, I, I only drink old fashioned, you know, and then but they they only know their category yeah. of old fashioned and they don't know the other ones. So it's very it's a very interesting one
1: quite a small number of people even know that Bacardi is a rum. They think of it as a category that kind of sits on its own. And they think oh, I drink Bacardi but they don't really know that that's even a rum. And what uh, how,
0: how do you play with your with your portfolio? Do you do you play different games with different SKUs or do you have one one that you use as the foot in the door and then you expand distribution with the others or is there like a flagship or
1: is more of a portfolio kind of game? So we, we, we launched them kind of uh, sequentially. So Duppy Aged was the, it was just called Duppy Share in those days. And that was the first product. It was a blended golden rum, three-year-old Worthy Park Jamaican rum and a five-year-old 4 Barbadian rum. And, you know, it sat on the shelf. It was, a, it, it was a bit of an everything product. We were using it in cocktails. You could drink it on the, on the rocks. It worked really well with a rum and ginger or rum and coke and as that product grew you know we were seeing it kind of sitting on the shelf at morrison's and having to do a you know 28 pounds down to 22 pounds discounts and at the same time it's sitting on the shelf in selfridges at 33 four, thirty-four pounds and it was kind of being stretched in every direction as we kind of chased growth and we were taking on investor money to try and kind of scale the brand up you knew that you had to kind of release products at a lower price points to protect your initial brand and spice rum in 2017 2018 when we launched our spice rum was absolutely flying and growing from a small base but really succeeding so we launched our spice rum in order to protect the premium positioning and the price point of our age rum so our our spice rum was kind of built to do the retail job of starting at 25 pounds, coming down to 20, driving awareness, and allowing the aged rum to stay there as a kind of premium product. I think what I thought was the same consumer sitting across aged and spiced, as we kind of understood and did more insights and talked to more people, people are normally either a spice rum drinker or a rum drinker. And, you know, you can see it in the UK, there's Ian Burrell, who runs the UK uh, rum fest the, the global rum ambassador you know there was a couple of years where he ran two separate rum fests you know there was the spice rum fest and the uk rum fest they are massively different consumers so there was a very little kind of crossover between those two brands and so so no cannibalization and definitely acting in different spaces and often a different space on the menu or different space on the shelf between aged and, and spiced and then we had this great opportunity in 2021 with a brand partner that we had been in conversation with for five years before that. Uh, There's a a UK actor and Rafa called Kano, and we've been talking to him for years, and we saw he did a bit of promo for Rare Nephew. We got obviously very jealous and thought, why why are you working with them? Come on, let's do a brand together. And we started talking to them about, uh, to Kane about doing a white rum kind of in partnership together. And in the process of doing that, as soon as we even came up with the idea of, a brand called Duppy White that was going to be 20 pounds on the shelf, It got listed in, T- in Tesco straight away before we'd, before we'd even put a label on a bottle or put any liquid in it. So we suddenly felt ourselves potentially being dragged down to a less premium price, you know, less premium portfolio. So at the same time releasing Duppy White, we released Duffy Exo, which was a 40 pound product. So our, our, our portfolios kind of evolved out of needing to kind of protect the overall positioning. But now that we've got four products sitting across the kind of rum spectrum, we're able to have quite a clear commercial strategy. So Duffy white is house poor, competitor to Havana three, put it in the bar and you want it to be your rum and Coke and what, you know, your, your highest selling cocktail. It's a brilliant, brilliant product for its commercials can compete on price with probably a pound more than Ricardi in most bars. So it's a pretty good proposition. And then the spice and the aged are your kind of premium upsells and Exo sits in the back bar and doesn't move a huge amount, but it premiumizes the, the, the portfolio and it does as much of a brand positioning job as a volume job for us. Wow. That's a,
0: that's a, that's a really great strategy. It sounds like it was really built bottom up because it's not something made on a PowerPoint presentation of a portfolio strategy, but it comes with time and, you know, issues mm. and challenges and opportunities and, you know, like making all things fit with each other. Then, yeah. you know, consumers see the end result, which is a back bar with three or four SKUs. But but like in the, in the end, there is something for each type of consumer. I heard you guys talking about
1: the different consumer and the, the the downside of having a broad portfolio is that you are talking to a huge number of people you know our duppy white is a predominantly urban younger audience duppy white and duppy spiced tend to be drunk by more female consumers and then you've got age and exo which are talking to an older male consumer exos kind of tends to be above 45 so a tiny brand like us with, with limited resources is actually trying to talk to kind of students all the way through to grumpy old men having a uh, cigar in their library, you know, and it's there's it, a lot of different occasions for a lot of different people in that the strength of having something for everyone, you, 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 the risk is that you've got nothing for anyone. What I would argue there is that there must
0: be a, a type of person that looks for that type of brand regardless of the taste profile it could be someone that is like it's a connoisseur but then wants to introduce other friends and people to the category so maybe they buy another yeah. one for other people or vice versa you know it could be like a, a young girl that you know loves that brand and then introduce the the xo to the father or to the yeah. uncle or whatever the aunt or like the rum drinker of the family but it it I I guess in seeing what, you know, your communication, your website and your your product, your label, you know, it speaks to a certain type of people, re- regardless of the age and the taste profile.
1: I think that's true. Again, go back to your, your conversation with Paul, you know, I think that the, the big the big mistake is to target consumers that are too young to be able to afford your products. It's a- <laughs> um and as much as Duffy's kind of aspirational consumer is a kind of 25 to 35 year old urban creative, you know, people that are working in ad agencies and come to our super cool people parties that we throw. The reality is when you look at your analytics, the very sort of few pockets of lights that you get as an independent brand on who's buying your product. You know, you look at your Waitrose data, over 50% of our Waitrose, you know, people that have bought Duffy age from Waitrose are older than 50. They never show up on our Instagram. They never show up to our parties, you know, but they like the product. The price point's about right. They may be trading down from a malt whiskey or something. And they enjoy brown spirit or dark spirits. And they're making that choice almost entirely on product price and packaging. Having never tried your liquid and four, you know, cause you're a new product to them. You've got to kind of have a broad enough church to bring everyone in to, to your brand. And we've been so lucky with our, we've got a, a, an interesting name that is a nice brand hook that people kind of are intrigued by without, without necessarily understanding what it means. And the packaging is really nice. Our designer is the most genius person and the most valuable asset to our, our, our company. And the price point is is competitive. And those those three things are the things that will get your consumer to try your product. The fourth thing is then liquid. You absolutely have to have a liquid that stacks up and does, you know, follows through on all those premium price points, nice, nice packaging and, and sits on the shelf in the right place. But if your liquid then lets you down, then you're in trouble. But listening to your, your views on whether you start with liquid or start with brand, your brand is what entices people in and your liquid is what gets them to come back again. But very few people try, try your liquid on, you know, before they buy a bottle on the shelf or, you know, often it's a gift. I love that. If you allow me, I'll, uh, I'll steal it with pride.
0: And, uh, and, it. <laughs> and and let's, let, let's clarify actually for the listeners, like what what's the reason behind the name? Because I, I love, I love that story. So what's the yeah, reason so Dup- of the, the Duppy share? Uh,
1: I mean, the name came from, so D- Duffy was founded by George Frost, aged 25, was in the Caribbean. He was waiting actually for his brother to come join him at the bar and was sort of overhearing a bartender talk to a, a customer who was, um, asking. What, why there was a shot of rum sitting at the end of the bar. And he said, oh, that's to keep the Duffy's away. And he said, oh, well, you know, what, what are the duffies? what are you talking about? And he said, oh, well, there are the concepts in, in whiskies and cognacs called the angel share, which is the amount of spirits that evaporates away during the aging process. But in the Caribbean, we don't believe that stuff. We believe that these crazed spirits called duffies they come into the stilleries, they swoop between the islands and they steal all the best rum from the barrels that's aging. And they blend it together and they have this massive party. And George interrupts and said, oh, what do they call that? And he said, oh, it's, you know, it's called the Duffy Share." And, uh, you know, for someone who was at the time thinking about setting up a a, a rum brand and trying to think of a name and a brand positioning that worked, you know, knowing that you're not going to have a distillery, to be able to have a story that kind of leaned on that Caribbean heritage and recognizing the incredible talent, skill, and heritage of the distilleries that you're working with, but while also, you know, being up front and legitimizing the project of being a blended rum, that Duffy Share story kind of allows you to lean on that heritage and to, to kind of recognize the, the talent and the skill of those people and then deliver a beautiful packaged product that tastes great and there's a blend a blend of rums, which is kind of what the project was that we were trying to do. So the name and the brand all kind of stack up behind the liquids and it, it kind of tied the liquid together with the story. And it was a really nice, way of doing it and you know that story told it a thousand times but like it's a nice short story that's just enough for a bar sender or a consumer to remember it and become an advocate for your brand without being overly complex or for anyone to have to understand or memory i remember you know, too many facts or figures about history i love i love that i love that that's a beautiful story and it's
0: super easy to re retell to um, yeah. people over yeah. dinner i think
1: most people have vaguely aware of the angel share as a story it's a good you know i think it's that's a quite a broadly understood concept, and i think to be able to then twist that concept and tell it from a caribbean perspective and change it for rum it's been quite a kind of useful tool i love i
0: love that i love that that's all for today remember that this is a two-part episode 46 and 47 if you enjoyed it please rate it comment and share it with friends and come back next week for more insights about building brands from the bottom up.